Are those your favorite songs? Mm-hmm. Can you sing them for me? Can you sing? Hi, welcome to Trusted Words. I'm Ethan, and it's been a while since you've heard from me. If you're a previous listener to the show, you already know that this podcast was created to share authentic stories from real-life situations. I create this podcast with some help from my wife, Molly. Hi, guys. My son, Danny. Hi! And my daughter, Harper. What's up, dude? I've even featured my dog, Samson, in some episodes. You could call this the first episode of season two, since I'm coming back to this thing after a long break. It takes a lot of time and effort to create this podcast, and I just didn't have enough time in my life to continue creating episodes until now. I also ran out of ideas for new content after my first few episodes, but I come to you now with a fresh batch of interviews and stories, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. The title of this podcast is Trusted Words, and the reason why I chose that title was because of my daughter Harper. When I started this project back in May of 2017, Harper could only speak a few words, and I'll play them for you here. Oh, you see a picture of Mama over there, right? Mama and Dada. Mama and Dada? And Harper? Mama. And Harper and Danny? Is Bubba your name for Samson? Hmm? Now the list of words that she knows is beyond what I could convey in a podcast episode. These words have a trusted meaning that exists in both of our minds. She's able to convey what she wants to us now because she's built up a vocabulary. This process of conveying a message from one person to another is what I'm trying to do in this podcast. I've got stories that I want to share in a specific way. This podcast is how I convey that to you. But just like a conversation goes back and forth between two individuals, I'd like to hear from you after this episode. If you're a listener, no matter who you are, I want to hear your thoughts. So please, reach out to me in person, email, whatever, and start that conversation. If you have an interesting story to share, let me know. I'd love to hear it. I'm releasing this episode on February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, exactly 10 years since I was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, or ALL. In 2008, during my junior year of high school, I was admitted into St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and became a patient there. That hospital helped save my life, and for that, I am forever indebted to them. 
I also have my family, friends, and church community to thank for their support and prayers during some very difficult years. And in this episode, I'm telling the story of what happened from my family's perspective. This makes a lot of sense to me to have them do most of the talking, because from my vantage point, my cancer story is more about them than it is about me. Sure, I was the one who had the disease and the chemotherapy and all other kinds of drugs pumped through my system. But my parents took on the brunt of the emotional toll and accepted the responsibility of living life in Memphis, roughly eight hours away from home. I certainly didn't feel the pressure or concern of what would happen with my school progress. My parents worked that out with my high school. I didn't have to worry about logistics for my siblings or figuring out how my dad would still be able to work or where we would be staying, what we would eat, the list goes on. In my eyes, my parents took on the hardest part of all of this because they had to bear the biggest emotional burden, and so it just makes sense to have them share what they went through. Also, if I'm completely honest, I don't remember a whole lot about my treatment. It's either faded from my memory like a bad dream, or I was never 100% there mentally during my treatment to form lasting memories. For a lot of my cancer treatment, I was undergoing chemotherapy while also taking pain and anxiety medications, so it's not really a surprise that my memory could have been affected during this period of time. Also, I think as a coping mechanism, our brains shut out traumatic experiences, so that may be another reason why I don't remember a lot. When I think back to this time, I remember the positive things that happened. I remember my dad and I making an amazing steak dinner together. I remember friends from church and high school traveling down to visit me and playing video games. I remember my grandparents and pastors visiting and praying with me. I remember my mom writing updates on a blog dedicated to keeping my family and friends informed as to how I was doing. In preparation for this episode, I read through all the updates on that blog to try and piece together this part of my past from my parents' perspective. It was surreal to read that first blog post about how it all started. My mom and dad were so dedicated to keeping this blog going. I counted 232 total blog entries spanning five years, with a total of 51,265 visits to the site and 306 visitors who signed up to receive email updates. Reading those numbers is overwhelming because I know there were so many people praying for my family and encouraging us. As difficult as it was to go through some really serious medical concerns, I can only imagine what it must have been like for my parents. I have so much gratitude for them and how they supported me through all of it. So here's the story, told from my parents' perspective, starting from the very beginning. You're listening to Trusted Words, authentic stories from real-life situations. I got my parents on the phone recently to discuss the timeline of events leading up to my diagnosis of acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Here they are explaining to me how they first came to realize something was wrong. You started just feeling achy and you said you felt like your bones uh, ached and it sounded, you know, very much like the flu. So, you know, we thought you'd get better, but then that had lasted, I think, a couple weeks and then you were doing a shift at Panera and you were just wiped out. Not the usual recovery from, uh, you know, a, a teenager with boundless energy. You were just wiped out. And I think it was just like a two or three hour shift. So it wasn't like an eight hour shift or anything. I sensed that something was wrong beyond what a, a virus would do 
to a person or something. I think one of my main concerns was that you were having pain that was moving all over your body from, you know, one day it would be in your shoulder, the next day it would be in your leg. It was unusual. It's something I had never really seen before. But I do remember there being a lot of confusion right there at the beginning because you had hurt your knee, which was, I guess, just a major coincidence. So the first thing that you complained about was that you would hurt yourself when you fell down on ice um, in a parking lot. We were celebrating Samantha's birthday. We went to Monocle's Pizza. That's when you fell in the parking lot. But, but you could still walk and, and everything, so there didn't seem to be like you needed to be seen or anything like that. But then you started complaining about other things being wrong. I just remember being very perplexed about what actually is going on. Um, so that first appointment, he examined you, and he said he thought it was a virus, and he prescribed a lot of Tylenol and Advil. So you were going to school taking, <laughs> like more and more Tylenol and Advil because we'd call back within a day or so and say it's not hitting the pain. You were just very visibly ill in terms of when you walked around, you looked like you were in pain. So I knew that the Tylenol and Advil weren't doing what they needed to be doing. Finally, I went to see a specialist because the pain medication wasn't working for me. And when you were in her office, she noticed the lump on your neck. I noticed it because I was sitting at an interesting angle and I actually saw it, and then she felt it. That I remember because I thought, ooh, that, there's something there. And so she ordered special tests for you at that point. Thankfully, my dad wrote something about this in his journal, and he read back to me his entry from that day. Ethan went to the rheumatologist, and she found a mass in his neck. His right neck is swollen. He needs to have a CAT scan as soon as possible to see what it is. In doing my own research, I found that it could be just a swollen lymph node from infection, or it could be cancer. Pretty scary. The results of the CAT scan came back, and they said, um, you know, that it was definitely a, a tumor and that it was that it was pretty serious. I remember after the results of the test had come back, I got home from school. My parents sat me down and broke the news to me. Yeah, when you came back home from school, it was hard because we knew this is, you know, this is a major turning point. This was going to be um, difficult at that point. We didn't, I don't think, even imagined how difficult it was, but that you had something serious going on and that it wasn't, you know, going to get fixed uh, right away and easily. It was. It was good in that you had some... We had some explanation of why you weren't feeling well. We now had a, a lead on that, but it was just crushing to have to be able to tell you that you know you have some major health problems uh, here to have to right. deal with. Later that same night, after my parents had that talk with me, I couldn't sleep because the pain in my chest was so bad. I took you to the ER because you were having problems uh, breathing, and in addition to the uh, mass that you had in your neck, you also had a mass in your chest. So that was sounding worse. Now you have two masses. You know, all that day, every couple hours after they would do the test, the doctor would come and say, oh, we're not sure, but here's what we're thinking now. The 
the diagnosis of what that would mean um, in terms of treatment got worse and worse until finally they said they you had leukemia. I don't know if they had it typed of, uh, of uh, ALL yet, but they said it had leukemia and that the best um, place to treat leukemia would be St. Jude's, and they had already called St. Jude's and got you accepted as a patient. And then that Friday, they were taking you over to OSF St. Francis because that's a St. Jude's affiliate, and they would get you started on treatment over there. So I think that um, was, again, Friday night. And then Saturday, we had a lot of people come over and visit. The elders came over and prayed over you, anointed you with oil. In the fifth chapter of the book of James in the Bible, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Uh, going to a Presbyterian church, uh, I, we're not in to the Naban and Claimant kind of theology, but rather to say, well, this is what scriptures say to do, and out of obedience uh, to that, we're asking for the elders to lay hands and for ask for the Lord's intervention for those who are sick. And so I think the anointing uh, with oil is just uh, symbolic. There's healing power in oil, but ultimately we're asking for the Lord's healing hand on uh, the individual. So we asked the elders to come and they did. I was airlifted to St. Jude Children's Research Hospital that evening, and it's probably the only time I'll get to take a ride in my own private jet. My parents headed down there as well, driving through the night. It was something out of a novel because it was a dark and stormy night. It, it, was, it was raining the whole time down there. We had no idea how far Memphis was, um, and it was we're, we're driving through the night, it's rainy to the point of not being able to see. Uh, it's all highway from here down to, to Memphis. It's just taken I-55 uh, all the way down. But we kept thinking, are we there yet? How far is Memphis? Uh, it was so stormy and rainy. It just seemed to be in keeping with our lives at that point in time. Now, earlier in the episode, I mentioned this blog that my parents kept in order to update family and friends on how we were all doing. Here's what my mom wrote in that blog about the trip down to Memphis. Another neat thing has to do with Dave and my trip to Memphis. We left around 8 on Saturday night. There was heavy rain and fog most of the way. We both had been sleep deprived for about 48 hours, Dave more so than me. Normally, Dave would do most of the driving, but he was really having trouble, so I did most of it. This would normally be hard for me, but my mother's instinct kept me plowing ahead. At one point, I suggested that Dave use his fancy phone. I think that was just a smartphone? I'm not sure. Anyway, use his fancy phone to check email and read it aloud while I drove. He was able to read all the emails regarding Ethan from his address and mine. Then he read all the scriptures that our prayer chain coordinator collected the day the elders prayed over Ethan. 
Even though we were exhausted and the trip was very trying, God lifted us up through encouraging words in Scripture, and we made it to Memphis around 5 a.m. Just as we got here, Dave realized his cell phone was missing from his belt clip. He thought it fell out when he got out of the car somewhere. We were unable to do anything about it then and were so anxious to see Ethan. The next day, our pastor's wife called to let us know she'd tried to call the number, and someone answered and said they'd hold the phone for us. We got in touch with the guy who found it at a rest stop and was about 70 miles from Memphis. Just as we called, someone else just happened to be there, whose daughter was traveling to Memphis that day and offered to bring it to St. Jude's, where she used to work. When she brought it, she said, I'm praying for you. When my parents arrived at St. Jude, here's what my dad wrote after they got situated and right before I started my chemotherapy. Our head doctor, Dr. Sandlin, is a strong Christian man. What a blessing. He said that he has been praying for Ethan and quoted scripture to him as he was explaining things to him. And this was our first meeting with him. One of the scriptures that he had for Ethan was Philippians 1.6. Ethan was feeling and looking better this afternoon, and we sat up for a while and finally got to eat at about 5 p.m. They have restricted his eating and drinking due to tests. He was reading a Calvin and Hobbes comic book that Spencer Thomas brought to Peoria before we left. Ethan is starting on his chemotherapy treatments tonight. Please pray that he would have minimal side effects and that the treatments would be effective We will keep you updated on his blood counts. Note, Nita is going to start helping with the journal, so you'll probably notice a shift from my, Dave's, factual, technical updates to a mother's description of how Ethan is feeling. I love that. My dad's transparency about how his journal updates are focused on the facts and how my mom's journal updates focus on the emotions and feelings. I wrote my first blog entry on February 19th, And in it, I talked about the character of Job from the Bible. Here's what I said. In James 5, 7 through 11, it talks about patience in suffering. It says, As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I really just had to contemplate what Job went through. He was rich and extremely blessed. Then he lost all his possessions, all his children. He was afflicted with painful sores from head to toe, and he used pottery to scrape them. His wife just told him to curse God and die. But instead, he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? There's no way I can compare myself to Job. I've had over 15 nurses in the past five days that can get pretty much anything for me. I've gotten shots of morphine for the pain. I have tons of friends and family praying and telling their churches to pray, and we didn't even have to ask. So those were my thoughts at the time of receiving treatment. I think what I'm trying to say here is that compared to Job, I had it easy. I live in a day and age where cancer diagnosis is not necessarily a death sentence. Thanks to many years of research, St. Jude has found a combination of chemotherapies that are very effective at fighting my type of cancer. I didn't know for sure what would happen at that time, but I did know that my chances of survival were high if my body responded well to the treatment. For any pain that I was experiencing physically, the doctors were able to provide me with medication immediately. There's no comparison to the level of suffering that Job endured. 
Roughly a week after I started chemotherapy, my pastor Bob Smart drove down to Memphis to see our family and took my mom and sister Samantha back home. My dad and I moved to the Ronald McDonald House. This was a short-term apartment-style living arrangement provided by St. Jude in collaboration with the nonprofit Ronald McDonald House Charities. The Ronald McDonald House of Memphis opened its doors in 1991. It's a 53-bedroom home and it's completely free for patients and their families thanks to generous donors. We are so grateful for the Ronald McDonald House providing a safe place for us to stay during this time. It allowed us to connect with other families going through the exact same situation, and I have a lot of good memories from living there. Treatment at St. Jude consisted of three main things. First of all, what I would call the normal chemotherapy. Receiving chemotherapy is generally pretty boring. Imagine waiting around in a hospital room for hours. That's pretty much all there is to it. At some point, they stick your arm with a needle, hook you up to a bag full of poison, and you sit there and wait for it to run through your body. As I recall, you don't really feel terrible until hours or days after the treatment is finished. And the symptoms are just general fatigue, nausea, headaches, that sort of thing. It's not glamorous, even in a kind of medically interesting way. You know in the movies where they take the patient back to an operating room and perform some type of procedure that's disturbing, but also really kind of cool? Well, most chemotherapy is the opposite of that. It's uneventful, really pretty boring. Actually, the longest part is the fluids that they give you after the chemotherapy. With one drug they gave me, they had to run fluids through my body for eight hours after the chemotherapy was finished. That's a lot of just sitting around. I remember learning how to sleep just about anywhere because I was tired from the chemo and it was just so incredibly boring. Well, you know, the, the boring part um, as you're waiting kind of now in retrospect seems like you there there's a logical reason for it the very first thing you always had to do was get your blood taken and they would look at your what your ANC which was your absolute neutrophil count which was how uh, how much of those neutrophils is basically measuring your immune system and they're trying to keep it um with the chemotherapy is it's it's killing off your um ANC and so if your ANC gets too low you're at high risk of infection but first they're taking your blood test then you got to wait for those blood test results to come back before the you see the doctor um because the doctor doesn't have anything to go on until he sees your blood test so then you see the doctor and then the doctor looks at that and then says, okay, this is the chemotherapy that we're going to do today and the right dosing based on your weight and where you're at. And then then you go out and wait and you wait for the um, nurses to, and the pharmacy to mix up that special, you know, mixture of your chemotherapy for that day. And then um, as soon as that's ready, they and they have an open area or open bed, they call you in to get that. So it's kind of like it's not that they're so backed up. It's just the the process that you had to go through. And so you're doing that every single day um, just in these long periods of time in the waiting room in between all those things that uh, had to happen. 
The second consistent part of my treatment were the spinal taps. These are also known as lumbar punctures, and if you're squeamish about needles, you should skip through this part. Go ahead, I'll wait. Okay, are you sure you want to keep listening? I warned you. Okay, so basically, when you get a lumbar puncture, you're laying down on your side in the fetal position on this operating table, and they give you this medicine so you don't absolutely freak out. Basically, this medicine calms you and tells you that everything is okay, but actually everything is not okay because the doctors are about to insert a needle the size of a number two pencil into your back. They keep you awake for this procedure, but you're just kind of zoned out because of the drugs that they give you. The purpose of the lumbar puncture is for the doctors to insert chemo drugs into the spinal column, as well as extracting spinal fluid to make sure no cancer is spread into the spine. Looking back on this, I find it really fascinating, but I'm sure during the procedure I was definitely ready to get it over with. The third main part of my treatment was what they call a bone marrow aspiration, which is when the doctors remove a small amount of bone marrow fluid so that they can check the blood cells made in the bone marrow. That way, they could determine how much leukemia was in my body at any point in time and determine how much treatment I still needed. On March 3rd, about two and a half weeks after I started treatment, no leukemia showed up in the analysis of my bone marrow, which was great news but the treatment would still last for another two and a half years to make sure that the cancer would be completely wiped out and never come back. The first couple months of my treatment, my family spent a lot of time in Memphis, Tennessee. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is an incredible place. If you're not familiar with who they are and what they do, they're leading the way the world understands, treats, and defeats childhood cancer. Their goal is to drive the overall survival rate for childhood cancer to 90%. Their daily operating cost is around $2.2 million, and approximately 75% of those costs are covered by public contributions. My family never received a bill from St. Jude because of the generous donors who believed in this hospital's mission. St. Jude sees over 7,800 kids each year, and they share their research with doctors and scientists all over the world. St. Jude really takes care of their patients and families. Here's my dad talking about that. The only thing I was going to add to your comment about uh, St. Jude's was just I, I was amazed at how well they take care of families uh, in crisis like that. So it's not just our usual um, medical treatment where you go in and then you're kind of left uh, to be on your own uh, to figure out uh, the rest of life, but they know that um, these families are in crisis as they come down, and so they think of everything. I mean, they when we did our orientation, they uh, gave us a Kroger card to go do our grocery shopping, and they paid for mileage to travel down to Memphis, and, uh, you know, they took care of anything, everything, so you didn't have any excuse not to concentrate on, you know, your... Uh, getting getting better. Um, and so I, I was just astounded because at home I would have to pay for my own groceries and and uh, take care of things. But they gave you a meal card so you're, you could eat all your meals over in the cafeteria or they gave you a Kroger card, you know, to use that to make your own meals. You, you were really uh, well cared for 
uh, during that time. And the, um, so I really appreciated that. And the quality of care is just astounding because they have staff meetings where they would discuss your case. It seemed like every day, probably at least every week, um, probably maybe every day as uh, that early treatment plan was being formulated. So they had specialists, not just your oncologist, but they had a hematologist. Uh, they had all kinds of specialists that were concentrating on your case, analyzing the results, and then determining the best course of action for you. So the level of care was just astounding. In our next episode, we'll continue this story. But before we're finished today, I want to introduce a new segment to you. It's something that Danny and I came up with. We're calling it Basketball Facts with Danny. It's the part of our show where I learn something new about NBA basketball, which isn't too difficult for Danny because I know almost nothing. Welcome to Basketball Facts with Danny, the part of our podcast where Danny shares... A basketball fact. Did you know that Stephen Curry scored 400 threes in one season? 400? That's a lot. You're nodding at me. Is that an impressive number? Yeah. So, is that the highest record is 400 three-pointers in one season? I don't, I don't, I don't think so, but I don't really know. But it's really high. Yeah, it's really high. Nice. Anything else about that fact that you want to share? Oh, he eventually beat his record with 500. I mean, not 500, uh, 408. 408? Another season? Wow. So is he most famous for his three-point shots? Yeah. That's, like, what he's the best at. Cool. Is he still your favorite player? Yeah. You think so? Yeah. Who's your one, fa- one of them, or at least. Okay. Who's your second favorite? Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. Nice. All right, so that's our first Basketball Facts with Danny. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. We'll be picking up next week where we left off, and I'll have my parents share what they've learned through this experience. And now, I'll let Harper close us out with a song. Find a monkey up in the bed. He but he had. Mama called a bad dog, a bad dog said. No, uh, monkey's the bad.